Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of several books. His latest is The Capitalist Manifesto in Defense of Global Capitalism, available now. Johan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Let's begin with uh, a little uh, definitional work here. Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, capitalist is a, is a word uh, people uh, assign a variety of meanings to. Uh, what is the the capitalism that you're talking about here? Yeah, it's not a great word. <laughs> Quite often it's misunderstood. Uh, people think it's all about capital. It's not. We can have capital in many different economic systems. Uh, to me, free market capitalism is about uh, a decentralized economic system with private property where decisions are made uh, locally decentralized, not command and control, and the prices and wages and things are set in voluntary negotiations rather than top down. The economist Deirdre McCloskey hates the word capitalism. She prefers innovism or trade tested progress. Should we insist on using a different word to describe the world's dominant socioeconomic system? No, I mean, Deirdre McCloskey's. Right. <laughs> Capitalism is a, is a bad word. I would much prefer innovism or something like that. <laughs> but I've realized that it, uh, in order to communicate with people, I'd better use some of the words that they are using. And I've realized that we're stuck with the word capitalism and the whole concept of capitalism. And if we don't fill it with meaning, those of us who, who like free markets and free trade, I've realized that somebody else is going to fill it with meaning. And in that case, we are losing the debate. So go to where the sinners are. That's that's my take. I mean, 20 years ago, it seemed like markets had won. Capitalism was changing the world and bringing people out of poverty. President Clinton declared the era of big government is over. China was opening its economy. What happened? Why do you feel the need to write this book in this moment? Yeah, that's exactly why I wrote this book. Because nowadays, it seems like nobody likes free markets and, and free trade anymore. Um, I've realized that in the US, and that should be a place where people appreciate some of this, uh, fewer people believe in, in capitalism than believe in ghosts nowadays. And there's this lack in among politicians and governments everywhere in in belief in a, in a global in global capitalism. There's this whole repatriate stuff subsidize specific businesses and sectors back home rather than having global supply chains. So uh, that's why I wrote this. I think this is all based on a complete misunderstanding of what has happened in the world in the past 20 years. Uh, it's not that markets have failed. On the contrary, despite the fact that we've had 20 rough years with financial crisis and wars and uh, the great pandemic and stuff like that. And yet we've seen when you look at objective indicators of human living standards, more progress than ever before over these 20 years when it comes to 
the reduction in poverty, more than 130,000 people lifted out of extreme poverty every day over the past 20 years. We've seen an increase in G global GDP per capita of roughly a third. Uh, we've reduced child mortality by almost half, which means that 4 million fewer children died last year than in 2002. And this is because entrepreneurs and innovators, they keep innovating ourselves out of problems all the time if we give them some freedom to do that. And that's what I'm worried about, that they'll have less freedom in the future if we uh, do not keep on um, pounding and keep on explaining this. Those are some pretty impressive statistics, but people don't seem to notice. We keep hearing the same narrative of late stage failed capitalism. Why is that? I think the financial crisis is a very important part of this. It, if, if some capitalists do bad stuff, people lose faith in capitalism. And I think we saw this in the US, but also around the world, there's this sense that perhaps we shouldn't imitate what the America is doing if it, these are the consequences. And, um, you know, I don't think that the financial crisis was a result of um, unleashed market forces. And I even wrote a book on, on this a couple of years back, uh, Financial Fiasco. I think there were massive regulatory failures and central banks and ministers of finance trying to make capitalism very safe by implementing a very homogenous structure on everybody, telling everybody to go into the same way, searching for the same triple A rated uh, securities and stuff like that. And if everybody behaves in the same way, if that fails, there's massive disaster. We need decentralization partly to, to minimize risks like that. But doesn't matter. We don't have to go into history. I think this partly explains why we're in this lack of uh, trust in, in capitalism right now, but also other things like, you know, people, when they're afraid of the world, they tend to retreat. They don't want to explore. They don't want to innovate. They just want to, it triggers their fight and flight or flight mechanism. Uh, and sometimes a societal fight or flight uh, mechanism. And this is, you know, you want to hide behind walls and tariff barriers and strong big governments that protect you. And that is a misunderstanding of how we get out of crises. And this is what I think we've, we've learned from these past 20 years. Yes, lots of bad stuff happened. It makes us afraid. It triggers some sort of evolutionary uh, tendency to um, to get, get away from openness and learning and discovery processes. And instead, we want just one instant solution to all the problems. But what we're learning is, how did we get out of the pandemic? We did it by having thousands of entrepreneurs constantly finding new ways to rebuild supply chains and finding replacements for the resources that they couldn't get. And innovators who are looking for new treatments and coming up with a vaccine in a record period of time it didn't take a thousand years as it usually does um, coming up with a vaccine against polio. But more like three months. Um, but try to tell that to our sort of reptilian brains. Uh, it's when we're fearful, we we want one simple solution. And as H.L. Mencken once put it, there is always a solution to every problem. It's uh, neat, plausible, and wrong. <laughs> and, and it's so dangerous because it involves replacing all that discovery, all that learning, wisdom of millions with just the preferences of a few people at the top. 
Uh, let me uh, read a uh, a brief tweet uh, by the, I guess, I guess you would call him right wing populist writer uh, Sorab Amari. We are entering we are entering a new age of industrial war. The California ideology, neoliberalism, Reagan, Clintonism, whatever you want to call it, it's kaput. We're going to see close coordination between state, enterprise, labor. It took security threats to bring us here. I'll take it. Why won't you take it? That's a scary prospect to me. Um, there is a reason why he's talking about the Silicon Valley thing, because that worked splendidly. And one of the reasons it succeeded was that it the outcomes weren't decided in advance by any kind of command and control thing. It was, as some criticized it in the 70s, it was, looks more like the Wild West, allowing entrepreneurs and innovators to, to experiment with with crazy ideas, even in garages. And and that's the way to, if you want to explore all possible avenues and, and ideas, we have to let everybody go out and, and look for it. Um, I think the reason why Zorba Armani, Armani is, is wrong is that he thinks that there is one solution to all the problems we, we face. Um, perhaps there is, but I don't know one, and he doesn't know it. We have to allow more eyeballs to look at the problems and more brain to to go out thinking hard about these things. And that involves not starting geopolitical uh, divisions and uh, nationalist uh, temptations, but it in involves having lots of people in other places helping us to find the solutions in a division of labor where we learn from what they're doing. Why has America been so successful so far? And and keep that in mind when people say that, look, it's failing this, this American, this Washington uh, consensus uh, thing. Please keep in mind that just 15 years ago, the American economy was slightly smaller than the European one. Now it's almost a third bigger. So, I mean, if it's it's not entirely broke. So, but some of the fixes might break it. I'm I'm afraid if we continue doing things like this. Why is it successful? Well, look at different uh, areas. Uh, look at AI. Why is America so successful? We thought that China would come up with it. Well, one reason is that the Chinese have to teach machines not just what to say, but also not what not to say. But also the fact that America is learning from others. Um, more than half of America's uh, top AI experts have uh, education or background in other countries, and uh, almost a, a third come from China. So if we want to win against China and everybody else, we also have to allow lots of Chinese to do the work for us. So uh, this notion of uh, close coordination between state and business and labor, uh, where does that work well is, is is there a model is there an example of that kind of uh, formula working elsewhere you know a leading european economist really just published a book called um, i think it's some 50 of them called questioning the entrepreneurial state where they evaluate this whole idea that we would have this close coordination between governments and uh, and businesses and what they say is that the history of it at least in Europe, but they look around the world as well, is that 
it's usually a um, full employment program for um, uh, lobbyists and uh, for attorneys who just reformulate everything that businesses would usually do as something that fits with this new um, uh, industrial policy thing. If it was successful, you would look up stuff on, on the internet by using Quero, because that's the close coordination stuff in, in Europe with the European uh, and German and French governments heavily funded a European Google. The whole idea was that we will own the digital future by heavily subsidizing this one project. Uh, and, and it doesn't work because you lose some of the trial and error. You lose some of the uh, mechanisms whereby we understand what's a success and what's not. I mean, it's okay to fail. Industrial policy fail all the time, but so does uh, big tech. So does uh, entrepreneurial capitalism as well. But the great thing with free markets and not having the governments investing heavily in one particular model is that you replace this trial and error, constant experimentation and feedback and adaptation that comes with when you work on markets and you're risking your own resources. Once you do that, by having the government picking a winner, well, then when you lose out, you spend more money on these projects instead. And you lose this learning process whereby we're constantly channeling capital and labor to more successful ones. What people would tell you is that China is the most successful place where yes, we've the, had this. Yes, there seems to be a cyclical component to this uh, this belief. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to have seen the uh, the 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 version where Japan had figured it out that didn't turn out so well and then I think you have people looked at China uh, if you have a natural inclination to sort of like the idea of central planning and uh, and and you eschew these the kind of natural chaos of capitalism you could point to China but that that doesn't so that's why I wonder if this is a passing phase because China doesn't seem like they're able to pull it off either. Yeah, but they'll keep on moving then and find another example where it seems to be working because it's always easy to find out in in retrospect that someone something seemed to be working and if the government is involved somewhere they they try to give it the, the um, credit uh, but you know uh, until recently fifty um, I think forty nine American states. Uh, try to spend heavily to create a biotech cluster in their own state to attract businesses from other states. And, you know, if one of them succeeded, people would have said, look, this is because of this top-down government intervention, uh, but probably not, right? And that is the same thing with China. Yes, China has been tremendously successful for, for 30 years, but in which sectors? In the sectors that the government didn't plan for it, in places where we saw grassroots capitalism Farmers secretly privatizing their land, uh, starting village enterprises. And then and only then did the Communist Party say, see that, okay, look, this seems to be more successful than what we've been doing uh, recently. So allow them to continue to experiment, experiment in export processing zones and stuff like that. But they wanted to keep it elsewhere so that it wouldn't spread throughout the rest of the economy. But it was so successful that it did. That's what succeeded when People experimented, entrepreneurs were allowed to, to innovate. What was it that failed? The large state-owned enterprises. 
they were less productive, they were wasting cheap credit and ruining, destroying resources over the years. And once the government gets involved, there's plenty of research into this. Uh, they find less productive businesses and they become even less productive if they get access to this cheap credit and cheap cheap land. Uh, and, and I think people are coming around to that now as they're seeing that China has many problems and some of them related to demography as well, but they would need innovation, strange new business ideas, uh, uh, crazy people in garages coming up with new ideas. That's exactly the thing that top-down governments don't really like. And, and what they've been doing over the past few years is just destroying um, tech businesses, uh, ed uh, businesses in the gaming industry in China, because authoritarians aren't good at spotting where the true potential lies. I wonder if you could uh, clear up a, 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 a question that confuses many Americans. Uh, do you do you come from and are you currently living in a capitalist country? <laughs> yes, I am. We, really, we, I, we I, don't know. We're not sure. We're very confused about Sweden. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I know. And that's because lots of perceptions are stuck in the uh, just like the ideas are stuck in the 1970s. We Sweden had a period, a brief period of some 20 years when we really experimented with socialist ideas. Um, but this is the moment, also the moment when Sweden the only moment in modern economic history when Sweden lagged behind other countries. So up until the early 1970s, we had a very limited government, low taxes, free markets and free trade. That made us rich. It made us so rich in Sweden that we thought that we could experiment with these ideas. So just stop thinking about how to create wealth, just spend it, redistribute it. And that resulted in an awful 20, 25 years when Actually, companies like IKEA and Tetra Pak and the greatest entrepreneurs, they just left Sweden because it wasn't possible to do business in Sweden. Um, this is what people still remember. The 1970s, we did all these things, double the size of the government, um, jacking up taxes and, and, and so on. And it seemed at the same time, it looked like it's a fairly successful place. It's a rich place. Uh, but yeah, it's like that old joke. How do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a large fortune and then you waste most of it. And that's what we did. And this is actually why since that terrible economic financial crisis that we had in the early 1990s, Sweden has once again liberalized markets quite drastically compared to, to other places. And we're now back to a a system which many Americans would see to actually think of as more free markets in free more free market in many ways than the U.S. system. As you know, people think of uh, Sweden and, and and Scandinavia more generally as big government with a giant welfare cradle to grave welfare, all the welfare you would ever want. So, in what ways is uh, is Sweden maybe? you know, more market friendly than the United States and perhaps some ways which would greatly surprise many Americans as well as Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'm trying to tell the Bernie Sanders of the world that if they want to be like Sweden, they would have to uh, do plenty of things. Uh, they would have to become more more free trade oriented in many ways. They would have to... Uh, reform social security, partially privatize it with individual accounts. They would have to introduce a national school voucher system so 
private schools get the same funding uh, funding as the public ones, they would actually have to lower taxes in many ways on on the rich, <laughs> and they would have to abolish taxes on property, wealth, inheritance, and uh, lower the corporate tax, and instead put most of the tax burdens on uh, low and middle income households, because that's the dirty little secret of the Swedish welfare state. Uh, we learned in the 1970s that if you want to have a big universal welfare state that's very generous, in that case, everybody is going to have to pay for it. You have to redistribute over people's life cycle rather than trying to get the rich to pay for it all, because we realize that the rich are too few and the economy is too dependent on them. So if we are trying to get them to pay for it all, they will... Uh, Flee Sweden, they will move to other places, um, leave their resources elsewhere, and we won't get the new businesses, the new successful ones that we all depend upon. So for 30 years, we didn't create a single net job in the private sector, the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. So instead, you have to move towards more taxing consumption, um, 25% value-added tax, and, and making sure that the poor and middle-income households pay the bulk of income taxes. So counterintuitively, and this is something that people really don't get, Sweden has a much less progressive tax system than the United States does, a less pro progressive tax system than almost any other rich country, because we've learned that the poor are loyal taxpayers. They don't move, they don't dodge taxes, and they don't have tax attorneys. So okay, what is the quick pitch, elevator pitch for capitalism? Like if you're at an airplane next to someone who's heard a lot about inequality and wage stagnation or losing to the Chinese, how do you make the case for market capitalism? Yeah, well, the quick um, flight pitch is then, um, it's much, it's much, much better than you think, but it could be even better. Uh, it is much better because we can see it. Look at the long-term indicators uh, and, and the data. Uh, and perhaps this is where I lose my fellow passenger. But, you know, wage stagnation was a phenomenon in the 70s and 80s, and partly because we had to rebuild the economy because it was at risk of becoming much less competitive and we were about to lose jobs everywhere. Once we did that, from the 90s and onwards, we've had a tremendous uh, increase in, in wages. To, and we can measure this in, in wages and total compensation, an increase in 60%. I'd say if you look at the, the best indicators, but even more interesting is what can you do with those resources? And then you see that all those amenities and goods and technologies that we all considered luxuries in the 70s and 80s, we're getting close to 100% possession in, in American households. The poor people who fall below the poverty line in the US now own more amenities like that, washing machines and television sets and uh, dryers and uh, clothes uh, uh, washers, and, and of course, cell phones and computers than the rich did in 1970 and that tells you something and if you look around the world we've actually had the best era ever when it comes to poverty reduction and we've even since the turn of the millennium reduced global inequality for the first time since the industrial revolution so it's much better than 
the headlines. If you look at the trend lines, yeah. they're much better. But, but, but tell me, could tell, be me so much yeah, tell me about that book. Could even, give me a little of, of that. Could It could be even better. Give me a little flavor of that. Yeah, because I think that we've uh, lost, and, and you know this, and you just wrote a book on, on this. We've entered a period where we've thought that things cannot be better. We've tried to protect old business models and old ways of doing things. And often in a low interest rate environment, I think we've protected many businesses that should have been put out of their misery uh, so that capital and labor could go to the new sectors, to the interesting, the frontiers of uh, of the economy. Um, we are seeing some of that happening now with everything from mRNA technology to the new space race to AI, but we're in a mindset and a regulatory um, uh, situation where we don't want to experiment with a new weird stuff uh, but we have to do that because that's the only way where we'll get the new goods and services and jobs in the future so uh, here's to the crazier ones as, as steve jobs would uh, would put it and in that case we can't be too protective of our old ways old safe ways of doing things Johan, that was outstanding. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much.